Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Storybound. It's a podcast. It's a show that features the voices of today's top literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. In every episode of Storybound, listeners are treated to their favorite authors and writers reading some of their most impactful stories designed with powerful and immersive sound environments. Season 1 stories include readings from Lydia Yuknovich, Matt Gallagher, Adele Waldman, Diksha Basu, Nathan Hill, Mitchell S. Jackson, and more. Each episode is paired with a talented and unique musician to provide the score. Season 2 just launched. It launched on July 14th, and it includes episodes with authors like Stephanie Dandler, Lauren Groff, Tommy Orange, Yaag Yassi, Garth Greenwell, Juno Diaz, and more. At its heart, Storybound is a storytelling podcast. It's brought to you by the Podglomerate. You can listen today by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. Hey, how's it going, folks? This is the Other People Show. Welcome to the program. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. And I have as my guest today Maggie Downs. She is the author of a memoir called Braver Than You Think, Around the World on the Trip of My Mother's Lifetime, available now from Counterpoint Press. I had a really good time talking with Maggie. I know her a little bit. We had met in person one time before this. Uh, a few years back out in Palm Springs and Palm Desert, and I am very pleased to get to feature her on the show and to catch up with her. So Maggie Downs is coming up momentarily. I should mention, I guess I should mention, that I'm almost done with my book. I feel a little superstitious. I don't know what's going to become of it. I make no promises about any of it. But just the fact that I finally got this thing out of my body and onto uh, pieces of paper or onto... Uh, like a document. You know what I mean. I'm almost done. I'm basically done. I'm getting very close to being done with a significant draft. Not that there won't be more work to do, but for those of you who have listened for a long time to this program, you know I've been working on this thing for entirely too long, so I'm just giving you an update. The book is close to being done. A draft of it is close to being done. That's what I can tell you as of today. So uh, my guest 
today is Maggie Downs. Her new memoir is called Braver Than You Think, Around the World on the Trip of My Mother's Lifetime, available now from Counterpoint Press. Very pleased to get to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Maggie Downs. And for a long time, I was really um, obsessed with skydiving, and that was all I did. Is I would skydive every weekend. All of my friends were skydivers. Um, and so, you know, naturally, that extended to my writing, and all I wanted to write about was skydiving. And it turns out that skydiving is really boring for people who aren't skydiving. <laughs> like, like, it's cool to see once or to see someone, like, skydive into an arena or do something like that but nobody really wants to hear about like the intricate details of every skydive I've ever taken so yeah that's a that's a dead blog that I've left behind somewhere so how did you get into skydiving like you you could do a solo like you don't need a tandem dive no no, I have I have a license to do it solo um and, you know, I thought I thought I was actually going to become a professional skydiver at one point. I had a skydiving team and I was working my way to becoming a skydiving coach. Um, and I really thought I was going to write skydiving books. Like um, there are all these niche communities within skydiving. And I thought, I'm just going to live in a trailer for a while and follow around these skydivers. Um, yeah, I got into it um, because... When I was in my mid-20s, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and that made me really um, reckon with my own mortality and just kind of evaluate my life and think about the things that I wanted to accomplish. And honestly, it made me think, you know, I was at a point where I thought, well, there is, you know, a genetic link to Alzheimer's, so if I'm going to get it anyway... Like, why not skydive now? (laughs) Like, I would rather just go out early, go out doing something fun and exciting and really amazing um, than slowly die of Alzheimer's eventually. Um, So that's how I started doing it. Um, But it became a real passion for me. I loved it because... um, like when you're skydiving, you can't be stressed about anything else. You know, you can't think about the all the minutia of your day. You can't think about the stress at work or anything. You are totally present in that moment. Otherwise, you will die, you know. Um, and And so for me, it was really relaxing. I know people who were more like the Red Bull adrenaline junkie type of people, but but that wasn't it for me. Um, did it deliver some serenity? It did. It did. Um, you know, my favorite jump of every day was um, sunset load. And that's when the plane would go up just before sunset. And we would reach altitude right about sunset. And um, and I would jump and I would deploy my parachute early. And I would just like be suspended in in the color of the sky. And, and it was so quiet. And um, just really peaceful. So I, like, I lived for that, that moment. And then, you know, you land and, and it just feels like you accomplished something. It feels like everything is right with the world. You feel so lucky. Um, There was just an immense (laughs) gratitude that came with it. Like, I didn't die. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I loved that. I'm, 
and I I also loved, you know, um, competitive skydiving is interesting, but um, what I loved about the sport of skydiving also is that uh, women could compete against men. Like everyone was completely equal. And, um, and it's rare to find a sport where it doesn't matter your sex or your gender. Totally. So what, but what does competitive skydiving even entail? Mm, there are different types. Um, so there's a style of skydiving called free flying, and that's more like kind of like modern dance in the sky. Um, you do like if you've ever seen someone in free fall with their head um, facing the earth, kind of like a lawn dart. <laughs> Like, um, so, uh, like a head down skydiver or doing certain moves like that. Um, then there's relative work and that's where the skydivers come. You jump with a team of people and you make patterns in the sky. Like I'm sure you've seen those motivational posters that you have in offices where people like, I have one on my wall right here. Right. (laughs) And the skydivers have joined hands, um, and they make those patterns. That's relative work. And they're are different types of competitions you can do with that. Like um, you need to do a certain number of patterns in a, an allotted time. Did you ever get uh, into a situation when you jumped where it got sketchy? Like your chute didn't open or you had to use your backup chute or you were uh, worried about something? Yeah, my 200 second jump, um, my parachute didn't come out. Okay. And so yeah. like, and, and how, how, when you say the plane gets to altitude, are we talking 10,000 feet? Is that what it is or more? Usually, um, about 13,000 feet. Okay. Um, uh, between 13 and 15,000. Right. We would always uh, beg the pilot for extra altitude though. So, so you can stay up there longer. Yeah. Well, does it get dangerous if you get too high? I guess it does, right? It does, but, um, but you're only there for a short amount of time. Um, and there are plane loads where you can take oxygen up and uh, have oxygen and then jump very quickly. Um, but that's that's rare. Do you remember that guy that jumped from space? Remember that? Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was crazy. Yeah. So I actually jumped with a woman who, uh, Cheryl Stearns, she was trying to... She was trying to be that person. She was putting together a group to um, jump through, um, jump through space like that. And, um, and she just couldn't get the funding or the support for it. And she is a really accomplished skydiver. It makes me really sad that a woman wasn't the person to do that. But, um, yeah, there are really amazing skydivers doing incredible things all the time. And I, I think that is also like a romantic idea to me that the concept of human flight, you know, um, I love to see people pushing their bodies to do things you can't you know, imagine they'd do. Yeah. I mean, to a point, I think that people, you know, you, I, I think of uh, Alpine sports as an example mm-hmm. or big wave surfing where people are out on these, mag, you know, gigantic, like 80 foot waves or whatever. Um, it can be inspiring and it can be uh, just a kind of uh, amazing to watch or to consider. But there's also a part of me that can't wrap my head around exposing yourself to that kind of danger. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets a little selfish at a certain point for me. Like if you have a family, you know, people, or even if you just have friends who care about you and you're doing these things that are, you know, close to crazy. Um, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there yeah. is, there is a line. Right. 
Yeah. Um, when I was a really active skydiver, I did have a letter that I had for my family and friends um, that they could, that hopefully someone would find um, on the event of my death. And it was really like making peace with everything and letting them know that I died doing um, something that I loved. Um, but I, it made me feel very up to date in my life. Like I was very much aware of, and I don't, I don't skydive anymore. Um, but it made me very aware of, um, like the things left unsaid or, um, any sort of like argument I had, you know, I would try to reconcile it and put things at peace because I knew like, well, I could die this weekend. (laughs) So, um, so I felt very current on like my relationships. I tried to write a letter like that once, like just to like have in my desk in case something ever happens to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a hard letter to write. I, I, I felt like goofy. I was like, what it's am I? It's really hard. Right? Yeah. What do you say? I mean, I, th- th- this, uh, this podcast is my letter. Like not this, <laughs> not this particular episode, but the podcast, is, you know, writ large. If, yeah. Uh, if anything ever happens to me, just listen to all, you know, however many episodes. If anything ever happens to me, find all of my old blogs and piece them <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's probably like a, a more accurate picture, you know. Right. <laughs> um, so let's get back to you in the in the air. Your two hundred and second jump. Right. You you jump out of the plane at thirteen thousand feet or whatever it is. Uh, was this one of these sunset jumps? No, it wasn't. Um, it was as. It was part of a skydiving festival, which is called a boogie. <laughs> so it was during a boogie. There were lots of people around. Um, it was a very like carnival-like atmosphere, you know, um, kind of like a Coachella for skydivers. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so I was doing this jump. Everything was totally normal. I had packed my own parachute, and apparently I didn't do a great job because the parachute did not come out. And... You know, on the way to altitude in the plane, the pilot had been playing music, which almost never happens. But because it was a boogie, like they were cranking up the tunes and he had been playing fog hat. And so as like when my parachute didn't come out, I had slow ride stuck in my head and I just kept thinking, I am not going to die to fucking fog hat. Like I, this is, this is not it. Like I cannot let this be the last thing that's in my head. Um, and it seemed like time moved really slowly. Like if you've ever been in a car crash, you know how time gets really stretchy. So it felt like I was suspended in air in free fall for a very long time. And I could only see like, at that point, it was more like basic shapes and colors. Like I, I looked up at the sky and I saw blue and it should not have been blue. It should have been a striped parachute. <laughs> and I looked at the ground and I saw green and uh, there's um, there's like a thing you pull on your skydiving rig. Uh, to cut away the bad parachute. And, um, and I decided to pull this thing, hoping that once I pulled my reserve parachute, the main parachute wouldn't get tangled up in that. So um, it's kind of hard to describe like the intricacies of the skydiving rig, but I, I cut away my main parachute. And at that point it came out of um, the rig in like a ball. It was still in its case. Um, 
and then it flew off into a cornfield somewhere and then um and then i i looked up and i saw yellow and that was my reserve parachute opening which i had pulled the um the lever for that what altitude would did this thing open um well so i would also jump with an audible altimeter and um and that altimeter makes noises like there's a certain beep when you're supposed to get away from people and separate um, from uh, from other skydivers in the air so that you can safely open your parachute. Um, but at that point, it was like like a a British ambulance, like a siren <laughs> going off because I was uh, below 1,000 feet. Oh, my feet. God. Um, but I also had a device on my skydiving rig that would have automatically deployed the reserve. So had I not pulled anything at all, um, there's like a, a tiny explosive in your reserve that fires it off if you have no parachute. Well, okay. So you've got some fail safe yeah. st- stuff working for you. I, uh, I've only, I've only, uh, skydove. Is that how you do it in the past? Skydived? I, I've, I've skydived, uh, once I was at a, I was at a wedding in Mexico years ago. Like a friend of mine got married down there on the beach and, um, like all the groomsmen went skydiving on the day of the wedding. Like that was oh, like nice. one of these things. And like, as I'm reflecting on it, cause I enjoyed it, you know, it was a little sketchy. The plane was like this little Cessna, you know, it was this tiny little plane. And I remember the hardest part being just like, just jumping, like getting out of the plane is the scary part. Everything else was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, and this is very typical of me. I remember diving and I think I was like the third or fourth guy to go. I forget how they did the sequence, but it's just the way that it worked out. And I, you know, you have these kind of expectations in your head about what you're supposed to do when you skydive or something. And I remember I did it, it was a tandem jump. So I had this guy attached to my back, this Mexican guy's like, you know, clipped into my harness or whatever. And once the chute deployed and suddenly everything slows down, I was like screaming, like I was like, woo, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but not because it was, it wasn't authentic. I think I, I think I felt like I needed to say something. And when you were talking about how quiet and serene it is or whatever up there, that was, that was maybe the truer part of the experience. And I remember the guy distinctly being like, it's okay. Or like kind of tapped me on the back, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like I, yeah. I, you know, even then I managed to find a way to be awkward, you know, like at, <laughs> so I'm like floating down at 3000 feet over the, the ocean or whatever. Um, you said something that really resonated with me and it was, um, about how getting out the door is the hardest part. And I feel like that was true of my, a skydiving experience, but it's just true of my life in general. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, like um, when I was skydiving, I, you know, I was scared a lot. And um, so I would have to play these mental games with myself. Like I am Angelina Jolie's, you know, stunt double in Tomb Raider and they need me <laughs> to get out the door and do this. By thing. the way, that's exactly what I did too. Right. <laughs> Um, and, or like, I would pretend like I was part of an Olympic skydiving team, which skydiving is not in the Olympics. So this was a real, you know, mental leap. But, um, but I knew that once I was out, I would enjoy the experience because you can't get back in the plane. Like once you're out, you just kind of have to enjoy it. Right. Um, 
So it was just a matter of like overcoming that hurdle and getting myself out there and forcing myself to do something. And then I knew I would like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I think too, like for people who have never done it before, one of the things that I noticed about it is that it's, it's kind of surreal and there's not a really strong sense of speed except with respect to like, you know, if you, if you somehow can lay eyes on the plane at like in the immediate aftermath of jumping, you'll notice how quickly it disappears. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But otherwise, like there's not a, a really strong sense of ground rush when you're up at 10 or 15,000 feet or whatever you jump out. And once you stabilize in the air, um, you know, everything, you're just kind of flying, you know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like the earth is like rocketing towards your face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I never had an opportunity to base jump, but I've always been, um, that's crazy. I no, I, I think it's really beautiful. I think it's a more organic way to experience the air. You know, um, it's kind of like the difference between free diving and scuba diving. Like I think free diving just looks so beautiful. I, I would never do it, <laughs> but, um, but I, I think like I, it just looks so, I don't know, personal and organic and just a really genuine way to experience a jump. Well, and these, these guys who use these, uh, what do you call it? Suits, you know? What oh I mean? yeah. Um, wingsuits. Yeah. Wingsuits. I don't know why the word just left me. I was about to say flying squirrel, but, that's <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I had friends who would wear those suits and we would, um, jump out of a regular plane with it and then it's called a rodeo jump where like that person's on the bottom um with their belly to earth and then like i would ride on top of them like like on a bronco or like a horse <laughs> <laughs> and you would get um you know more horizontal distance than um a vertical drop so it was fun and you met your husband he, your husband's a skydiving guy yeah. Well, now he's a math teacher, but, <laughs> <laughs> but when I met him, you know, he was the long haired, like dude who looked like he was an extra from a Mountain Dew commercial. Uh -huh. He was, yeah, yeah, he was dreamy. I know. <laughs> pushed me out of an airplane and yeah. The rest is history. Yes. So, and you were doing this, I mean, it's easy to kind of like psychoanalyze oneself with the benefit of hindsight, but there is some truth to the fact that you were dealing with the diagnosis of your mother with early onset Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and you were confronting, you know, all the big stuff that comes with that. I think mortality most centrally, I mean, is that an over, it's probably an oversimplification, but that that's the essence of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, honestly, I was at a point where, um, I was struggling to understand my mom's disease and struggling to understand how it could happen to her. And, um, and so it, it really made me not that I was like really taking stock of my life in my mid twenties. It was more like, I'm just going to do these things because I, I, I didn't know how else to feel something. Hmm. How old was she when she was diagnosed? Uh, she was in her late fifties. So I know, I know. And so, and, and, uh, like, are you like doing crossword puzzles and like, what do you, what do you got to do to <laughs> I, I stave know. this off? Cause it's a genetic thing, right? So you're probably thinking like, 
I mean, I, I don't even have it in my family line. I have like my grandmother uh, had dementia, but she was older. You know, she was elderly and um, was more like on time or whatever. You know, in mm-hmm. terms of that that sort of uh, degeneration. But even even so, um, you know, nobody wants to think of themselves cognitively declining. So uh, I'm very susceptible to any health related thing online and. I've read that like, you know, doing crossword puzzles helps or right. meditating or whatever it is. Like, do you have like a regimen that you use to try to uh, keep your cognitive health in, in line? I do, but it's imperfect because I'm human. So like I try, I try to take, you know, turmeric pills every day and um, certain things for, you know, certain herbs and vitamins for anti-inflammation and I try to do crossword puzzles when I can and I do meditate, but you know, it's not, it's not an everyday practice because I also have a five-year-old. So it's like, whenever I think about like I should be meditating, I usually take five or 10 minutes and meditate, but you know, I'm not like some health guru on a hill who's <laughs> trying not to, yet. yeah, right. Someday. <laughs> so yeah, because like, what is it? I mean, Alzheimer's is uh, like what is it? Amyloid protein? What? What am I, am I remembering this right? There's some protein or yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know exactly, but it's there are build. Um, there's a buildup of plaque in the brain, and um, and so uh, there are some anti-inflammation um, diets that have shown promise. Um, toward preventing Alzheimer's or at least staving it off. Um, But nobody knows. And that's the frustrating thing. Like I remember when my mom was diagnosed and my dad said, um, you know, you don't have to worry about it because by the time you're older, they'll have a drug or there'll be a cure. And we are not a single step closer (laughs) than we were, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's a, it's a convenient thing to think, not just about Alzheimer's, but about a whole range of things. About anything. Yeah. And you just sort of tell yourself like, oh, it's going to be fine. Like they map the, right. they map the genome. They're going to have something. They'll give me a shot and it'll be over with or whatever, you know? And, um, I know from my, uh, my son has some disabilities and we've been through the ringer like medically with that stuff. And like, you know, there's nothing more unsettling or a few things are more unsettling than being in a doctor's office, uh, either for yourself or, or for a loved one and having questions and then just having the doctor look at you and be like, yeah, not really sure. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're just yeah. like, you're like, wait a minute, you know, nobody, nobody knows or, or to just witness like the, the general like confusion and discombobulation of a doctor who, however well-intentioned, you know, just doesn't know what the hell to do. And sometimes that's the case, you know, when it comes to these diseases. Yeah. And you, you would think like, I keep thinking, but science, like there are scientists working on this all the time. Like we know so much. How do we not know this? It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, so who knows? I, I try to be as healthy as I can, but, um, I have no idea if it'll pay off. And of course my, my sister and I, each one of, uh, you know, we will become paranoid, like if we misplace keys or forget our purse or oh, something like that, you right. know, I immediately like text my sister, like, oh my gosh, I misplaced my wallet, <laughs> you know? Right. Um 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. What about like smoking weed and stuff? You're probably like not that, I would be a little bit worried about that. Like, I mean, cause that already, I feel forgetful. You know what I'm saying? Like if I get too stoned or if I'm. I mean, I don't do that much, but you know what I'm saying? Like, does that sort of stuff, uh, do you rule that kind of thing out to try to protect your brain? Yeah, I, you know, I used to um, smoke a lot of weed. And then ever since, not even since it became legal, but just at a certain point, it just really lost the appeal for me. It made me feel, um, it made me feel stupid. And I don't like to feel stupid. (laughs) I totally get it. Yeah. And there were nights where I would just be staring in the mirror, like, why am I this way? When, when will I feel normal again? And I thought, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> what if, what, okay, but here's a curveball. Uh-huh. What, what if cannabis is the key right. <laughs> to not getting <laughs> Alzheimer's disease? <laughs> yeah, I, then I'll go for it. Right, exactly. You and me both. I do remember there was a period of time where I was a raw foodist. And um, this is when I was hanging out with skydivers all the time. I was a raw foodist. And, um, you know, after a day of skydiving, we would just all get stoned. And we were at this farmhouse and, you know, had just smoked out. And then, um, and I was really hungry. I had the munchies, but I was a raw foodist, you know. So I ate like a whole watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) I ate so much watermelon. I was like sick of watermelon for a long time. Um, and I don't really know where that story was going. It just, I do not recommend uh, getting the munchies while being a raw foodist. I was going to say, you were limited. I feel, right. like, I feel like that's a very, that's an austere diet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone else just had a Pop-Tart and they were fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, does anyone have a large knife? And... Right. <laughs> Um, all right. So where are you from originally? So um, my family's military, um, Air Force, and we moved around a little bit, but um, mostly Ohio. Where in Ohio? Uh, Dayton, Ohio. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in uh, partially in Indianapolis, so not too far. Oh. And my sister went to UD. Nice. Yeah. So uh, when I learned to skydive, it was in Richmond, Indiana. No shit. Yeah. I guess that's a good place to skydive, like large, flat expanses of uh, arable land or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of telephone poles. So, <laughs> not, <laughs> not a, a lot, lot of anything. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. So you're a Midwestern girl. I am. I am. So I'm very um, picky about corn. <laughs> so it's, we're getting into summer corn season. Right. I know. I know. And every year in California, I'm angry about the corn. It's not as good. It's not. No, I'm, um, I'm very much a corn snob. So. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so you're a military Midwestern upbringing, but now you live out in Palm Springs. I do. And I love Palm Springs so much. You do? I do. You can deal with the heat? You know, I, yeah, I can. And I think it makes, it makes me feel like I deserve all the goodness of Palm Springs the rest of the year. Like, I feel like the full-time residents are just a little bit hardier and, you know, like I've worked for the good weather the rest of the year. Which is like what, from like, like, like October through April is the sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. October is actually my favorite month in the desert, but, um, I usually don't tell people that because I, I feel like it's just our secret. <laughs> like it's it. the best month. And then people don't really start showing up until November. Oh, okay. So that's when like the weather's good, but the tourists aren't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Now the word is out. I've just fucked everything up. With no, no, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Edit that part out. <laughs> so let's get back to, I want to get back to, uh, you know, your book and, um, you know, the journey that you took and how it's related to your mother's illness, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, your memoir is, is basically, it's a travel book in which you are taking a trip that allows you to kind of tick off items on your mom's bucket list that she uh, is not able to, to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah. one of the things that, you know, in prepping for the conversation that strikes me and it's super relatable to my own experience. And I've, I've heard it over and over again in conversations with writers on this show is how you set about writing this book thinking that it was going to be like straight travel. Mm -hmm. And that only once you started to wade into the material and you began to realize that the straight travel writing was missing something, did you, did you even begin to consider that you should include um, in detail your mother's story and the story of your relationship with her and you know go, deep, go more deeply into the grief? Mm -hmm. And I just find that, I mean, I can't help but laugh a little bit because it's so, uh, I, I relate to it so much. It's amazing how as writers, uh, we can convince ourselves that, oh no, we don't need to go into this, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. we'll just, we'll just step right around that, you know, and it's just, uh, it's almost never the case. It's, it's like, in, in fact, what's usually the case is that that's precisely the thing that you need to go into more deeply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite uh, bits of writing advice comes from Steve Almond, who says, um, slow down where it hurts. Right. And um, and so, yeah, I, I find that that's true in my writing. Like the thing I most want to avoid talking about is probably the most important thing. Yeah. And it's just like it, it, it's just so hard, I think, to face that stuff. Mm hmm. Um, and to kind of and, and to kind of find out what you feel and think about something, um, and but once you do it, there is some reward. I think I, I, I feel like, you know, however powerful um, an experience may be, and, and in this case, like an experience of loss, even even though it's powerful in and of itself, and in the moments that you're moving through it, it's not until you sit down to write about it sometimes that you actually are able to make sense of what the hell happened. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did this intensive workshop um, in Granada, Spain with Alex Marzano Lesnovich, who is the author of a tremendous memoir called The Fact of a Body. And it's um, part memoir, part true crime. And, um, and I don't know if Alex was the first person to say this, but they said um, that memoir is the genre of discovery and that you just need to wade into the muck of the unknown. And, um, and I, I felt like that was the process of writing this book. I just had to wade into all of this unknown. And then, um, and that's when I found out what the real story was. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. And I think too, about the issue of fictional, you know, fiction versus nonfiction and trying to sort of parse it. I get really frustrated with some of these distinctions. I think that if your memory is anything like mine, um, which is to say, if it's not great, mm-hmm. you know, I can find myself just being like, listen, uh, this, this might have happened. <laughs> you know, right. it's very hard. I, th- I think it's very hard to be fully sure in writing a memoir that what you're writing is nonfiction. Maybe I'm just saying the obvious, but I don't think to the casual reader, there's much thought given to this sort of thing. Like, do you have a process by which you're vetting material in your book or do you just sort of have to take it on faith that it's, it's close or pointed in the right direction? Well, you know, my background is in newspaper journalism. And so um, when I was kind of vetting my memories, it was, um, I, I approached it almost like a reporter, um, not as intensely as I would with an article that I'm writing, but it was more of like I would um, reach out to people in my past and say, hey, I remember this happening this way. Is this how you remember it? Or how would you have described this moment? Um, and just kind of not really to gather information from them, but just to double check that what I I remembered is mostly accurate. Um, there was one person who um, I pulled her memories into my book, and that's um, this woman, Katie, who I met when I was in Dahab, Egypt. And I was with Katie the night that my mom died in Ohio. And it was really important to me that I have all the details of that particular day correct. So I reached out to Katie and I said, hey, I'm working on my book. Here's how I described this day. Is there anything you can remember that I can add? Or, you know, does this resonate with you? Does this ring true? And Katie said, you know, I actually kept a very detailed journal of that moment in time. Like that year, um, I... I kept a journal. Would you like me to send you those pages? And so I actually was able to draw from her um, and put that into my story, which was, which was really great. And, and it did, um, it did confirm the things that I remembered. um, But she also had some, you know, just a little additional color that I think really rounded out that scene. Um, And that was like that part in particular was so important to me. And then other things, you know, um, I, I don't care if my sister doesn't remember the honeysuckle in our backyard or things like that. Um, you know, small details like that. Um, I'm, I'm 95% sure they were true, but, um, you know, I, I think still the truth of 
each moment is there and that's the important part yeah yeah you know it's like about batting average really i mean if not if you're <laughs> if you're 95 percent there you're good yeah and so you take off like this is the the conception of this trip is that you're going to go uh take a journey that your mother would have liked to have taken herself and mm -hmm. Um, it seems like an extension of the skydiving impulse, like you're wanting to live, live it up while you can and embrace life. Um, but you're also leaving when she is very ill, you're newly married and you're going to take off for a year. Right. So like, can you talk about the decision-making process there? Like, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people might be like, well, what, what, wouldn't you want to like be right there? The, you know, if she's, if she's in decline, you know, how do you make the decision to, to leave then? And, and also you have a new husband. Right. Um, so that is a multifaceted question. <laughs> um, it, it is definitely an extension of the skydiving thing. It was, um, I was at a point where I was feeling like, I was slowly suffocating in the cubicle where <laughs> I worked at a newspaper. Um, I was reaching a point where I felt like I was only telling other people's stories. And, um, and I wasn't even telling stories that I believed in or that um, I really that really mattered. Like I remember doing an interview with the designer of Paris Hilton's dog's clothes. And, and I was like, I, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. If that, if that doesn't throw you over the edge, I don't know what would, <laughs> you know, it's not like, this isn't the journalism career that I dreamt of. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't my Pulitzer moment. You know, I'm not doing anything groundbreaking or life changing. Um, and, and I realized I was doing the same thing that my mom had done, which was, um, putting off the things that I really wanted to do. And she always wanted to travel. Um, and she had certain things that she had talked about doing, like just going on safari or, you know, things like that, seeing the pyramids, um, just really normal stuff that a lot of people would like to do. Um, and, and I always thought, oh, I'll do it later. But when you're in a job where you have two weeks of vacation time and you're not really making that much money anyway, you know, it's, it just seems so far off and unattainable. Um, by the way, can I just interject here and, and, uh, talk about what bullshit it is that people only get two weeks of vacation. I know. I know. Like, like it's just not enough and it can be, uh, because usually you got to use it just to go see your family at Christmas or whatever. Like there's no mm -hmm. time to actually go have an adventure. Um, and that's even independent of whether or not the salary you're getting paid will afford such things. But it just right. it drives me crazy, especially as you consider how much vacation time people get in other countries, you know, like enough to actually spend some time decompressing or going somewhere interesting or I don't know. Doing something restorative. Yeah, absolutely. Like you need time to fill the well <laughs> and then you can be a whole person again at your job. Um, yeah. So I was, I was working at a newspaper. This was in 2010. So it was right after, you know, the recession newspaper industry had been hit really hard. Um, I was furloughed. I had a certain amount of furlough time that I had to take, um, which newspapers are now doing again. Um, and I just thought, you know what, I, this is it. This is, I'm done. I can't 
keep doing this. Something has to change. Otherwise, I'm going to reach the middle to end stages of my life and and still not have done the things that I wanted to do, you know? Um, and... And what? how old were you? You were like 30s. Yeah, I was early 30s um, at this point. And my mom had always been... Um, like, my mom was reaching the final stages of Alzheimer's. And we knew she was going to die within the next couple of years. I didn't think she would actually die while I was traveling uh, because at that point she had had Alzheimer's for about nine years. Um, but it was such a slow degeneration and her body was still pretty physically healthy. Um, but she had no awareness of our family. She didn't know who I was. It had been years since she had known who I was. Um, and she was always a person who, like she, her biggest fear was going into a nursing home and losing her mind and having some type of dementia. And that's exactly what happened. Uh. And I thought, you know, that's, my mom would never want me to take up part of my life and sit by her bedside and watch her die. Like that's absolutely not what she would have wanted. Um, so a lot of people have asked me that, like, why didn't you just go and spend time with her before she dies? But she wasn't my mom anymore at that point. And she hadn't known who I was and it's the very last thing she would have wanted. Um, what she would have wanted is for me to live my life. And that's what I decided to do. And you know, from the moment she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's moving forward, um, and I see this in retrospect, like her diagnosis has informed every decision that I made, you know, uh, from skydiving to actually making huge life changes and moving to California and getting married. And um, and it even, you know, informed my decision whether or not I wanted to have a child. And ultimately, I decided to have a child, but it was... I have I have held that child. Yeah, you have. <laughs> I, we should tell people we met at the uh, in Palm Springs at the at the uh, writers conference for uh, UCR, right? UCR Palm Desert. Yes, we had um, our uh, MFA residency, and you were there, and I was there with my child, who was I think four or five months at the time, and um, and he was such a squirmy little sour eggplant of a baby. <laughs> And you were generous and held him during lunch and you made faces at him and like talked to him and smiled at him. And he was very amused for about a half hour. And it gave me the opportunity to like eat lunch with my hands free for the first time in months. So, well, I know, I know what it's like to have a kid. I love to I'll hold a baby anytime. Like that's just, I like babies, but, uh, I was so grateful. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but I know cause my, I've seen my wife go through the same thing. Like you just want to have a bite to eat. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just wanted my arms to be free for like 15 <laughs> minutes and thank no, you. My, no, it's my pleasure. So Yeah. So I mean, my mom's diagnosis played into that decision too because uh, I really struggled with do I want my child someday taking care of me or my child to watch me die or my child to maybe someday get Alzheimer's himself, you know? Um yeah. So anyway, that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> no. Well, no, but it's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. And so, 
Um, you received the news when you're overseas that your mother has passed away. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit more about like, I mean, you're so far away and you're in such a, um, you're in Egypt, right? So you're, you're just kind of in another world and you get this news. And can you talk a little bit about how you received it and what your response was? Yeah. So, um, this was six months into my trip and I, I knew that my mom had been moved into hospice. Um, and I knew that her death was coming. Um, my family warned me and, um, and her body was slowly shutting down and we had made the decision that we would not prolong her, um, her death with, or her end with, um, a feeding tube. So there was a point where she, she no longer, um, could swallow or accept food. And so we knew, um, that without a feeding tube, like the, the end was coming. Um, so my family had told me, I I was calling home pretty regularly. Um, like whenever I had, I had Wi-Fi. Um, and I could make a call. Um, and my family told me to not come home because I was so far away and they said it wouldn't do any good. And, you know, um, and it was true. I, I had pretty much made peace with that decision. Like there was no reason for me to go home. There was, I had already had closure on her death or so I thought, um, but then uh, my my dad emailed me about her death, and it was a pretty like sudden. <laughs> it felt sudden, even though the death was ten years coming. You know, right. um, <laughs> like like you know it's coming, but then when it actually happens, it just it felt so startling. And and I was at the Red Sea, and I remember just looking around in this like biblical place, you know, <laughs> what if, I mean, just, I'm laughing just because like what a place to receive such news, you know, like it's a dramatic setting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm at the Red Sea and I've just received, you know, and, and my mom was very religious too. So it kind of felt very heavy handed, like whoever's writing this story. <laughs> like Christian, like what kind of religion? Yeah, She was very, very Christian. Um, she was a Lutheran. Um, but like the very strict Lutherans. <laughs> what is, what does that even mean? She, you know, she was very conservative in her beliefs and, um, and she was from Germany and I think she just felt very attached to Martin Luther because of that. I like, she loved the, the very dense hymns, you know, the things that have a lot of piano and organ and really weigh on you. And like, she loved Good Friday because our pastor would do this dramatic reading. And when Jesus dies, the pastor would say, it is finished. And then he would smack his Bible shut and it would resonate through the whole church. You know, she loved like these very dramatic biblical moments. So, of course, it makes sense that I am I was at the Red Sea when she died. Right. Um, and um, and. I, I just made the decision that I needed to go home. Like my, maybe it wasn't important to my family. Maybe it wasn't, I mean, obviously it was no longer important to my mom, but, um, but I needed to do it for me. And, and so I flew home to Ohio from Egypt and, um, and it was, it was winter and it was very cold and it was very stark. And then when I flew back to Egypt, 
um, the Arab Spring had started. So I landed back in Egypt on what's now called the Day of Rage, um, when just everything just kind of ignited. Damn. I know. Okay. So what year is, what year was that? I'm, I'm trying to play. That was early 2011. Wow. That was that long ago. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And it turns out like it was such a huge thing being in Egypt during the Arab Spring. And I have so many friends here in the U.S., in California, who have no concept what the Arab Spring was. When I talk about it, it sounds like one of my friends thought it was a festival because it sounds like, oh, the Arab Spring, like the Spring Fling. How do, how do people not I, have, how do people not know I, what the Arab Spring is? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've got, but I've got, I've got a couple friends like that who just have no, like, earthly idea what is going on right. in terms of like world events or politics. Like, they just don't pay attention at all. They're, and part of me is like, maybe this is the way to do it. Like, they're just, comp- <laughs> they're just happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're floating through life. They don't give a shit. But I'm, uh, I'm amazed that it, like a person can can miss a story that big. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and just being there, of course it was really huge for me. And that was a big like turning point in my trip too. Um, It was, you know, it was really difficult to be grieving the loss of my mom. And then also to be in a country where um, the, the government shut down the internet Um, So I couldn't reach out to my family. I couldn't let them know that I made it back to Egypt safely. Um, I couldn't communicate and um, I couldn't get any news. And for someone who, you know, worked in journalism, like I just wanted to know what was happening. (laughs) Like, like, do I, do I need to flee this country or should I stay or like, what's, what's going on? And just that basic information of what's happening was so important and I couldn't even get that. Okay. So wait, but like, cause I, re- as I recall the Arab spring and particularly what was happening in Cairo is that a lot of it was fueled. A lot of the communication among protesters was uh, happening via Facebook. It was on Twitter. It was uh, on which Twitter. Is, which is why the government shut it down. Right. Okay. Um, so then the government shut it down so people couldn't talk. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was, some cell phone service, but it was very spotty. Um, and so um, I I landed in Cairo on the day of rage, and I had planned to stay in Cairo for a little bit longer. Um, but then I ended up returning back to um, Dahab, which is that place on the Red Sea. Um, I ended up going back there because I felt like it would be quieter. And um, And because I had left my backpack there when I flew back to Ohio for my mom's funeral, I purposely kept my backpack in Egypt so that I would be forced to return to my trip and I wouldn't like get complacent or, you know, leave something unfinished. It's, it's getting myself out the airplane door all over again. Like I I knew I had to force myself to um, get back to my trip. So, so that's how I did it. Wow. And can you talk about that? Like, you know, you're a solo uh, woman traveling mm-hmm. the world and, it, you know, you're in places that are not necessarily entirely safe. And even if you weren't, you know, in Egypt during the Arab Spring, you, you would still find some people at least who would ask you about safety issues and whether or not you ever 
felt super unsafe or if you had like do you carry pepper spray with you or like what are you doing to sort of uh protect yourself or feel safe or make sure that you're not putting yourself in harm's way so um my trip began in south america and um and I didn't feel really unsafe until I got to Buenos Aires. And I only felt unsafe there, I think, because my coworkers at the newspaper had done um, a death pool on me <laughs> and predicted where I was going to be in the world when I die. Um, <laughs> and, which, you know, people have very dark senses of humor. <laughs> I, can res- a, I can respect that. At a newspaper. So, so um, they had predicted that I would be in Buenos Aires when I die. So I was already just kind of like, bristling when I get when I got to the city Um, and it seemed very daunting because it's it's such a big city and I was navigating it on my own Um, and it turns out I love Buenos Aires I I was I was in no danger there whatsoever Um, but that is the city where I purchased some pepper spray I went into a gun shop and I I bought some mace Um, and that pepper spray is the only thing that I ever had stolen from me on my whole trip. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Where where was it stolen? I, I have no idea. It just, like, in a hostel dorm room somewhere, somebody took my pepper spray. Probably some woman traveling by herself. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I learned little tricks along the way. Like, I... I don't wear a lot of jewelry anyway, but I didn't wear any jewelry on my trip, like nothing flashy. Um, I didn't, I tried not to show off that I had anything of value. So like I did travel with, um, with a MacBook, but I kept it inside of a padded like mailing envelope so that it just looked like a piece of mail in my, like if you were to look through my luggage. Oh, smart. Um, Sometimes um, if I was out like meeting someone for dinner or going to a restaurant and I knew it would be dark when I walk back, I would um, like sometimes I just wore a crossbody purse. Um, but sometimes I would also take that purse and I'd put it in like a plastic grocery sack. So it looked like I was just walking home from the grocery store and like nobody wants to steal apples from you. <laughs> one one so, house. Right. Um, There was one time uh, when I was in Cape Town, a man was following me through the streets and it was getting kind of dark as I was approaching the neighborhood where my hostel was. And I didn't have like my pepper spray on me. I didn't have anything. Um, But he was following me and I thought, what would be the thing that would make somebody like that would make me run away from somebody? Um, so I quickly turned around and I said, Hey, I've noticed you following me. Uh, do you have a couple minutes to talk about our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? (laughs) And, (laughs) and I just pretended to be a missionary and, um, and it worked. The guy was like, no, I, I do not have a couple minutes. (laughs) I would, by the way, that would make me turn and run away. That would be, I'd be gone. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I have no idea what I would have said if he would have said no, yes. No, it's funny. It's funny that you say that because I have an active imagination and I've thought of myself being in situations where somebody might have me at gunpoint or somebody might want to, you know, be physically harming me. And I've thought of that very thing, like just acting like a religious, like a very religious person. 
and like you know starting to like pray i don't know what it would be but just like i think like that sort of strategy sort of strategy is has pretty savvy yeah yeah so um and then i i really i didn't feel like i was in danger that often i did travel with um that crossbody bag that i had um uh, on my as a purse i would keep like a little flashlight on the key ring um i also had a whistle on the key ring because um, I feel like people don't even notice if someone is screaming anymore, but if, if you hear a whistle, <laughs> right. people will we look. Need some new, we need some new sounds. Scream, screams right. have become entirely too common. <laughs> so I, it's sad, but very true. Like people will look if there's a whistle. So, um, so I had a whistle, like just like a coach's whistle, right. you know? And, um, and then I also traveled with a rubber doorstop, like just a, you know, 99 cent little rubber doorstop. So if I was ever in a room, like a hotel room or a hostel room where I felt unsafe, like I would just jam that under the door so nobody could get in. And it just gave me enough peace of mind to sleep. Oh, smart. Where'd you, where'd you, you must've read that on the internet. I don't even remember, but you know, I, I bring it along when I travel internationally and then I had kind of a sketchy thing happened when I borrowed a friend's cabin <laughs> to finish writing my book. And I thought it's really dumb of me to not bring my stuff along when I traveled domestically. <laughs> so wait, was <laughs> this know? up in Port Townsend, Washington? Yeah. Can we talk about it? Oh uh, yeah, we can. So this was, this was the murder cabin story. <laughs> oh my God. So, um, when I was finishing my book, um, I was, I was on a deadline and um, a friend of a friend generously said he would loan me his cabin, which was outside of Port Townsend. And, um, and it was, it sounded so awesome. And he sent me photos of it and it looked beautiful. And a lot of writers have finished their books there, including some people I really love, like Meryl Marco, who is just like a great American humor writer fleet foxes Wait, is it, did, did she didn't meryl marco date david letterman for a long yeah time? yeah she was one of the first like women in late night tv writing right um, and by the way i don't mean to reduce meryl marco to her relationship with david letterman but that's just how the association it was, yeah yeah no it it was a big deal um and fleet foxes wrote an album there like it, this is a this is a cool cabin like lots of who's, whose cabin is this can can i ask or is it private it's steve de jarnet do you know him he's a writer who lives in la but this oh, okay. was his second home and he just does this as good like creative karma you know loaning it out to writers and um and he lives there part-time wow so good for him yeah, so we had this whole plan where Steve was going to drop off his vehicle at the airport in Seattle, and then he was going to catch a flight to Santa Monica, and then I would arrive in Seattle, pick up his truck, and then um, go to his cabin. And then there was a freak ice storm, and all the flights were canceled. Um, so then we postponed the trip, and we made you know a few other arrangements, and things got kind of rearranged to the point where um, now there was a local stonemason <laughs> who had to pick me up at a diner and drive me to the cabin. 
And then he was supposed to leave me with that truck. And, um, and then he would have his own ride to take him back to town. So the stone, I, I make it to Seattle finally. Um, it's still snowy and icy. There's not a lot of transportation options. Um, I, I meet this stonemason at the diner. I'm already dreading the stonemason. <laughs> I know. I'm already, I'm already really not a fan of the stonemason. I, I know. Honestly, if yes, everything you're thinking, that's accurate. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the stonemason, uh, he brings me to a grocery store. So I grabbed a few food items, but you know, I didn't get a lot because I was going to have the truck and go into town. So, um, so I had some groceries and then the stonemason drives me another like hour and a half to this cabin, which is out in the middle of nowhere. It's not anywhere close to Port Townsend. It's way off into the woods. And, um, and the stonemason, uh, was really like, caught like he really wanted to talk about being a death doula he was really obsessed with like becoming a death doula to watch people Uh, die uh (laughs) and I was like all right yay and um and then his other obsession was talking about um building a boat out of stone which um seems to have some structural problems but um he he's that's not even is that even possible i I don't know i don't know okay this guy sounds crazy i mean i'm not yeah (laughs) i'm not a stonemason so maybe maybe it is possible maybe stone boats are a thing Uh um he brings me to the cabin he takes the extra set of keys for the cabin and then um and then he takes the truck and so i'm stuck in this cabin in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors, there's no transportation. Um, this, this part of the world has no Uber or Lyft or anything. The taxis aren't running. Um, and it's just me in, in the middle of nowhere. And the stonemason said, um, Hey, I'll, I'll come back. I'll, I'll just drop off some stuff. I, you know, I check on the place and I might just come back after I go to the bar tonight. And I was like, no, no, do not come back. Like I, I will be writing. Just do not come back here at all. Um, and I was very worried. I was very like he seemed very um, sketchy to me, and I was just uncomfortable. Um, so I couldn't relax. It was very hard to finish writing my book in this place, and. Um, and I didn't have my little rubber door stop, you know, to keep the door closed. And this guy had the keys. So. And you didn't have any new pepper spray. I didn't have any new pepper spray. But um, Steve, the owner of the place, he collects a lot of like Hollywood memorabilia and just random things. So there was like a whack-a-mole machine that I pushed in front of the door. <laughs> and... Um, there were other things that I moved like in front of all the doors. It was, it, I went full home alone on this house. I bet. <laughs> I, I put like wine glasses by one of the windowsills so that if someone climbed in a window, I could hear the wine glasses fall. Right. No, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then at one point the stonemason did try to come by and he was, very drunk and he couldn't get in and then he was frustrated and just left. Um, But while I was staying there, 
Wait, wait, was he like, was he like pushing the door against the whack-a-mole machine? Like, was it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And it was so cold in this cabin. It was, I, I, I know the Pacific Northwest is cold anyway, but it was, it was very cold, bitterly cold. And I couldn't seem to get it warm. Like this was a very, um, this place had very high, like a high loft and, um, it just didn't seem to warm up. So, I spent a lot of time like just sitting in the bathtub and running the hot water. And then I put a board over the bathtub so that I could like write my book while I was in the bathtub because um, it was the only place where I could get warm enough that my fingers would like defrost (laughs) (laughs) enough to write. This is dispelling any romantic notion I ever had of a writer's retreat. I'm like, (laughs) fuck this. Sounds like a nightmare. And and then... um, And then the owner of the place, Steve, he reached out to me in an email and he said, hey, um, uh, there's an essay that a woman wrote while she was staying at my place. And she kind of reminds me of you. Um, I thought you might like to read it. The essay is about how this woman goes crazy in this cabin and wants to commit suicide there. (laughs) And so, so I'm reading this essay. And the woman is talking about like where she wants to literally hang herself. And I'm staring at the beam that she's talking about, you know? Oh my God. And, and so I, I emailed the the owner and I said, Hey, do you know any neighbors or like anyone who can take me to town? Like I'm running out of groceries. I, I need some transportation. And he was like, Nope, I really only know the stonemason. Um, (laughs) so So then I reached out to an old friend of mine who lives in Seattle. And I said, I need to leave this cabin. Can you come here and just visit and bring me some food? Or can you like take me to town? And, And she was like, oh, I'm so excited. I've never been to Port Townsend. I would love to do that. And her car broke down on the way. And that's the point where I just like, I sobbed. I spent like a whole day sobbing. (laughs) And and then, um, and then at that point I was like, I have to finish this fucking book and get out of here. So, because the deadline was still approaching, you know, my, my editor didn't care if I'm in a murder cabin. So (laughs) by the the way, by the way, like the, uh, the story of, uh, you know, like grieving the loss of your mother and traveling around the world, very captivating, but I have to say, like, I'm p- possibly more traumatized by the murder cabin. <laughs> the murder cabin, yes. Oh, my gosh. And there are so many other details that I am skipping over just to condense it for your show here. But um, long story short, uh, I ended up emailing a local cab company and arranging a cab to come get me as soon as I was finished with the book. Like, I typed the end and then I contacted this cab company and was like, get me out of here. I will pay you double. I will, you know, whatever you want. Um, and they <laughs> they um, forgot about the appointments and I was about to miss the last ferry of the day. And um, and I emailed them again because my phone didn't get service there. I oh, forgot that detail. My God. <laughs> so, and I was like, please, please, please come pick me up. Pick me up, please. And um, like this, this dude rolls up in like a Buick that's missing windows. <laughs> and what I was like, whatever, I'm just, I'm getting in the car. I had to climb in the window. The door wasn't working. Like I felt very <laughs> Dukes of Hazard. Right. And 
he brought me to the ferry. We got there just as the ferry was about to pull away. And I'm sure I didn't like leap over the water to get onto the ferry, but that's what it felt like. <laughs> like I was like running and jumping and finally on the ferry to get away. And, um, and then another friend picked me up once I, uh, reached Seattle and, um, and I was saved. <laughs> so, Damn. Um, well, I got to say, I'm amazed that you stuck it out and finished your book. Like you do it, you gritted it out. Well, you know what, actually, I will say one good thing about the cabin is that he had one entire wall of the cabin was corkboard because he is, he's a screenwriter. Um, and that's where he would like plot out screenplays. So he had this corkboard and um, a stack of index cards and I knew my book had some had some things that didn't belong in it, and there were some holes. And I fixed it by writing every scene of the book on an index card and putting it up on that wall and figuring out like the structure of my book. And honestly, I don't know if I could have finished my book without the murder cabin. So it was both a blessing and a curse. Wow. Wow. And dramatic. It's like a nice dramatic conclusion to the writing of your book. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so what about being on this trip and being, I mean, you talked about being in Egypt for the Arab Spring. Um, you were also attacked by a monkey in Bolivia. Um, like stuff, other stuff happened. Like you, you had some experiences out there. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to have kind of a medical emergency when you're in a place where you don't necessarily have access to the kinds of resources that, you know, a woman from America might expect or, or be accustomed to? Yeah. Um, so I really tried to prepare um, as best I could for this trip, like health wise. Um, I had, you know, um, I visited a, a travel nurse who that's a specific thing. And, um, and I had a whole list of vaccines that I got in advance. Like I'm the opposite of an anti-vaxxer. I'm an over-vaccinator. So I was like, I'll take any vaccine. I don't give yeah. a shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was like Japanese encephalitis. Give it to me. Like all of it. I, I <laughs> every vaccine I could get. Um, so I did all the vaccines. The travel nurse went over country by country with me. Like, um, like, here are the things you should know. Here are things to watch out for. Um, he gave me some antibiotics. He gave me, like, different types of things. Um, Do you have Cipro? Did you bring Cipro with you, like, in case you got some horrible stomach bug or something? Yes. I had Cipro with me. And then um, for my anti-malarial, I was um, taking doxycycline, which is a different antibiotic. Um, but then... Like I was so prepared. I had like a first aid kit. I was, I really thought like nothing is going to happen to me <laughs> because I have prepared so well. Um, and then the second country I visited, which was Bolivia, that's where a monkey attacked me. <laughs> and dude, that's like my nightmare. I, yeah. I, monkeys freak me out a little bit. They, oh God, they are dicks. Yeah. I mean, they are so cute, but, and so smart. Um, but I was volunteering at an animal sanctuary and this monkey attacked me and it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, it wasn't like he just ran up and bit me and then ran away. It was, it was an actual attack to the point where, why did he attack you? So there had been, um, 
some disruption in the sanctuary where some local people decided to build a road through the sanctuary and they came and chopped down trees with machetes and the animals were very agitated. Um, the people were very agitated too. Like I was very agitated walking, watching people cut down trees in this beautiful habitat with machetes. So, um, so I can totally get it from the monkey's perspective. Um, and, um, so yeah, this monkey attacked me to the point where I thought like, I, I, I need to protect my neck. Like if he bites my neck or my face or, you what, know, what kind of, what kind of monkey is this? So it was a capuchin, but it was, um, like the, like one of the alpha monkeys. So he was larger and more muscular than the other uh, ones. It wasn't like the cute little monkey you see on friends. How or, big, how big, how big is this thing? So he's, he was about the size of a basketball, but like all muscle. Oh God. Um, and he's coming at you. And uh, yeah, coming at me very strong, very fast. <laughs> and he has very sharp teeth. And at one point he bit me on the arm and I was wearing a long sleeve shirt. And then he wasn't satisfied by biting through the fabric he lifted up the fabric of my shirt sleeve and then bit into my flesh. And I was like, this monkey is psycho. What do you, what, what do, you do? How do you defend? Like, are you punching the monkey? What do you do? No, no. I mean, I just, I was trying very hard to remain calm and like protect my, my face and my neck. Like I said, because for some reason I was, didn't somebody die by having their Maybe I'm just imagining that someone had their face ripped off. No, 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 neck. no. There's like a chimpanzees will, will completely destroy a person. And there was an animal sanctuary in Southern California, out in the desert, actually, where mm -hmm. somebody who had kept chimps, like rehabilitating, like captive chimps or something, you know, it was kind of like a, it was nominally like a nice thing to do. You know, you have these chimps in captivity that were like circus chimps or something, and then you give them a sanctuary to live on, but... This person who, you know, kept these chimps walked into the cage one day and the chimpanzee absolutely destroyed this person. Like they are strong and they'll, uh, they'll bite, you know, bit off all of his fingers, bit off his nose, his ears, like that kind of stuff, you know, like that's what freaks me out. It's like people think yeah. of a chimp and they think of like a little baby chimp in a diaper and this thing will grow up and kill you. Yeah. Um, so this monkey wasn't nearly as big as a chimp, but he was like their ability to jump they're just so agile and so fast i was i was just very scared and i uh you know i cursed of course i yelled the fuck <laughs> and um and another volunteer um walked heard me yelling the fuck and walked up and saw um the monkey attacking me and that's when the monkey finally left um but i was bleeding and i had um you know, some, um, rabies. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of rabies. No, <laughs> um, I, I had some wounds, you know, and, um, and I was just very like just in shock. And so this was in the jungle. The closest village was about a mile, mile and a half. So I walked to the village and, um, and there was a little pharmacy and, I knew I needed antibi antibiotics, but I didn't know what type, 
you know, and the travel nurse had explained that there are different types of antibiotics that do certain things. Um, and this travel nurse was where? Was this in the States before you yeah, left? Yeah, in California. Oh, okay. And there's a such thing as a travel nurse? Yeah, yeah. He's so great. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, I highly recommend going to a travel nurse before you travel internationally. Um, and... And so I knew like I needed a certain type of antibiotic for animal bites, but I didn't know what type and I don't speak Spanish and the man at the pharmacy didn't speak English. So I went to the local internet cafe and I'm still bleeding, mind you, bleeding in this internet cafe searching like antibiotic for monkey bites, (laughs) you know, and, um, like Google, I feel lucky. Like, <laughs> uh, and I wrote down just a list of, you know, consonants because that's all like antibiotic names are. <laughs> it's just long words with tons of letters. And I walked back and I asked him, you know, do you have any of these? And um, and he presented me with an array of like old pills in <laughs> in like blister packs that were peeling open and. <laughs> And I was just like, I'll take what I can get. Like, I guess that one's colorful and looks good. <laughs> so, um, so I took antibiotics and hoped for the best. And then I was stitched up by a veterinarian. And um, and then, you know, a, a couple weeks later, I had to remove the stitches myself because I was no longer in that village. So I used fingernail clippers oh <laughs> and God. some tweezers. But you know what? And you just do it, right? Like you're you the... just do it. And it was one of those things where I was like, you know, this is where I find out what I'm really made of because I prepared as much as I could and I read as much as I could. And I, I have all these guidebooks. I, you know, I tried to gather all this knowledge, but there are some things that you will never learn from a guidebook and removing stitches after a monkey bite is one of them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You're outside the realm of like, you know, common knowledge at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was like, I can't go home at this point. I can't go home two months into my trip I just need to figure out how to like buck up and keep moving. And so, um, so that was, that was a huge turning point in my trip too. Like just discovering how resilient I could be and, um, like just what I'm made of. And it turns out that, you know, I think I started the trip as a very soft traveler. Um, and I started with a lot of, hubris and just kind of I don't know I thought like I'm gonna take on the world and by the end of the trip I I was much more humble but I had also just learned so much you get good at it you get good at it like you know like I uh I've been in situations like that like you're out traveling or you're doing some adventure and it's a big learning curve you know and and really it's a learning curve for you because you were bouncing around from country to country it's a learning curve every time you land someplace new because you're in a mm-hmm. different different spot and a different culture. But I think some of the fundamentals of traveling internationally apply no matter where you land. And it is like a skill. Like you get in shape, you know? And like you mm-hmm. get, I think by the end of the trip, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you get to the point where like you, people, you could have been plunked down anywhere on the planet. You would have been just fine. Like, you know, you get, you get sort of uh, travel hardened. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I think it was frustrating for my friends back home because I think they thought of it as like a vacation. Like I was just relaxing on a beach in Cabo or something. Um, but, but travel can be really hard and, um, and it was really lonely a lot of times. And, and it was hard to, um, it was hard to not complain about it, but even just to talk about it because so many people were, they just have had little sympathy, like, well, you did this to yourself and you're on vacation and I'm at work. So who cares? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I'm in the cubicle while you're, yeah. In, yeah. Getting, while you're getting attacked by a, you know, a capuchin or whatever it's called. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I think, I think it really, um, it's, you know, it can be, it can be really hard just to learn how to exist in the world, just to leave your hostel or just to, sometimes it's hard just to order a meal in another country or, you know, get your laundry done or just whatever, um, let alone starting a conversation with a stranger or, um, making a new friend or navigating a new place. Like all of that is, I think, an act of bravery. And I think all of that is, um, it is a skill and, and I'm better at it I, than I was before. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm perfect, but you do, I don't know. You just, you learn to be a better person in the world. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's making me, it's making me think of Anthony Bourdain, uh, whose death, like the anniversary of his death was just a week mm -hmm. ago or whatever. But in terms of American popular media, I don't think there has been a better advocate for travel like, you know, his show is nominally about food, but it's really about travel, I think, uh, to me anyway. And this, like, engagement with the world and also for the idea of travel as what what I consider to be the best learning experience. Like, the most intense crucible in which a person can learn a lot quickly in ways that really matter. Um, like, that's been my experience. Like, I always felt like, wow, I just was traveling for a couple of months and I feel like I learned more in those two months than I learned in the previous two years. Like there's something mm -hmm. really, in, uh, really amazing about what it does to you. If you go out there and get your hands dirty and immerse yourself in a culture that is completely different than your own. And I think that's what he was advocating for. Um, and that's, I think what we're talking about when it comes to, you know, you being on the road for this year and, and, you know, being a different person at the end of it than you were at the beginning, you know, in a multitude of ways, but, you know, in particular here, just in the sense of being able to do it and being able to respond to situations on the ground, um, you know, fluidly. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, interviewed Anthony Bourdain once and he was, I'm just such a, such a talented writer, such a talented person, um, but just such a remarkable person. And um, when he and I had a conversation, he talked a lot about, um, because I asked him about like why he bristles so much about vegans. And he was like, you know, people can <laughs> eat, eat whatever they want to eat. He said, I don't care if someone makes the decision not to eat animal products, but I want someone to be a good guest. Like, don't, 
don't go to someone else's house and say, oh, I won't eat that because it has this, you know, he said, I want people to show some humanity and to accept generosity. And I want them to be generous guests. And that, you know, that really stuck with me. Um, just the concept of, of being a good guest, um, especially in the context of travel. Well, yeah, like, travel and food, you know, I totally yeah. did that. I remember, uh, reading something about the Dalai Lama, you know, this was years ago when I was just becoming a vegetarian and he was talking about how he is a vegetarian, except when he's in a foreign country. And if he goes to like, you know, some state dinner or something, if they serve meat, he eats what's served. Mm -hmm. And that's always been my policy ever since then. Like if I'm in a situation where I'm at somebody's house or, you know, I'm, somebody's hosting me and I'm not going to make them make me a special meal. Like I just right. don't. I don't feel comfortable doing that. So I remember, you know, last time it happened, I was in Wisconsin and like, I went to this person's house. I didn't know well. And it was like bratwurst and you know, like, I don't know what else steak. It was just everything you would expect in like, you know, Milwaukee. And, uh, I just went with it. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about what's on a plate, but it has such bigger implications, like just the idea of just show some respect for others and just uh, be kind. And and what a different place it could be if if we all just respected each other that way, like if we showed that same kind of kindness toward others. And um, what do you think about when you talked about Anthony Bourdain being such a incredible person because it's something I hear a lot. And I know that sometimes when a person dies, you know, especially like a media figure, you know, you can s sort of, uh, people can kind of go overboard in terms of their remembrances, but it feels pretty authentic. Like I I've heard it so many times said that he was just this remarkable human and you hear all these great anecdotes. Like you really did have that palpable sense from spending a little bit of time with him. I did. Um, although at <laughs> He did um, make a joke about how uh, vegans are always sick. And then he um, he was like, they're always the most unhealthy people that <laughs> that you ever meet. And um, and I was like super strict, hardcore vegan at that time. And then Anthony Bourdain was coming to town the next week and we were supposed to meet. But I was sick. And so um, so I didn't <laughs> meet with him in person. We only had the phone conversation. Um yeah. Uh, you know, I think, I think he was an authentic person and I think he probably had, you know, his own vices and his own drama, but I've never heard anyone say that he was unkind or, or if he was, it was, it seems like the person deserved it. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. He just seemed like a mensch. He was a good guy. Yeah. I hope yeah. that, I hope that, you know, God, I hope that, uh, do you ever like read, I mean, not just with him, but do you ever like read like in memoriam stuff about somebody and it's like really good and you're just like, wow, I hope people remember me like this. Like, I hope I like, you know, when you die, it's like, wasn't an asshole. Like that would be like a nice legacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think about like the stories that I tell about my mom and I think a lot about like, what stories will my son be telling about me, you right. know, to his therapist or put in his memoirs someday like that's i i do wonder like what people will think of me later me too me too i mean i had like I, I i gotta say this like 
as a parent, I don't think I'm as good at it as I thought I would be. Maybe that's just the hubris of like, you know, a pre, pre-parenthood adulthood where you're like thinking of maybe having a kid. You'll be like, yeah, we'll just talk and hang. And like, I'm not one of these adults who's like really super good at relating to little kids. Yeah. Uh, like playing kid games and doing kid talk. And it's like, the worst. I don't have the, I don't have the disposition of like a preschool teacher. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so I get frustrated sometimes because like I can talk like this until the cows come home. But I try to talk like this with my like nine year old and she's like, dad, like, you know, like you got to come down onto their level a little bit and I got to get better at that. Yeah. I mean, I love hanging out with my son and I love taking him places and I really love traveling with him. But if he comes at me with like shoots and ladders or some trucks and he's like, let's play. I'm like, oh God, why? Right. <laughs> what did I do to deserve this? Right. Oh my God. Yeah. And then just like, I'm doing a FaceTiming with my daughter and she's, she's got, she's like, dad, I, I made up this skit. I made up this skit. And it's like, you know, it's, it's great when your kids are creative, but yeah. the skits like, 22 minutes long and yeah. you know half of it I don't even understand you know like <laughs> she's got like voices and characters and you've got to sit there on FaceTime uh, do you know what I'm saying like and, I and do. you're trying to like keep attention and you don't want to be a dick and it's just like you know it, I I sometimes wish I had more of a gift for like child mind and being able to like really engage and maybe the payoff is that I'll be better at parenthood like a, a more natural parent when she gets older like yeah question mark <laughs> yeah and you know i think about like just these random moments that stick out in my memory of things that my parents said or did and um and it's not the full picture of who they were as a parent, but, you know, it's just the things that stand out or kind of traumatized me or, you know, whatever. And, um, and so I wonder about that. Like, I am a super awesome parent 95% of the time. Well, and you're then, winning. Yeah, that's good. You're yeah, good. Yeah, right. But then, but then there's like that time where I'm just stressed out and quick to anger and, you know, yell or, you know, act like someone I don't want to be. Is that what my son is going to remember? Right. I hope not. Right. I hope he remembers all the awesome times. But to be honest, though, like, I don't I know. I, I think back on my childhood, I don't remember hardly anything. Mm -hmm. Like maybe some stuff, but none of it bad. I mean, I suppose if I sat down and like focused, I could maybe remember something. But like, even the good stuff is lost. Like most of it, like my memory is just shot, you know, like I feel like I, th I feel like it's more of a, for me anyway, it's like more of a generalized thing, like generally positive, good yeah. memories, you know, like we did some fun stuff. If I, if I actually sit down and concentrate, I can remember certain instances, but don't we usually, you know, make generalizations when we think about things as monolithic as like childhood, you know? Right. You know, I do have this one memory that always puzzled me. And it was um, when I was little, there was one time a tornado was coming and my dad put me and my brother and sister into the station wagon. He bought a family-sized bucket of chicken. He took the, the scanner, the weather scanner, put it in the car, and then we drove to a hill and we watched the tornado go by our town and like skip up, like hitting houses. And, um, and we just watched it go by. And 
I never understood like why that happened because we weren't storm chasers and we weren't like, why did we we do that? Why did we have a bucket of chicken and watch a tornado? And it never made sense. And then finally, you know, Dayton was hit by a tornado last year and I asked my dad about it and I said, you know, I have this memory that can't be accurate. (laughs) And he was like, no, no, I got the 20 piece bucket of chicken and we did this. And, and I said, why, why would we do that? And he said, well, I was scared. You know, we lived in a little ranch house and there was no place to go. We didn't have a basement. I didn't know which way the tornado would go. So I thought the best way of dealing with it would be in a car and like where we could keep an eye on the tornado. And I was, I was scared. I didn't know what else to do and never it never occurred to me that that's why my dad did that. (laughs) Like it just seemed to be like a weird quirky thing he did once. Um, But it, it gave it a whole new like level once I saw it through the lens of like, yeah, a scared (laughs) dad putting his family into a station wagon because he doesn't know which way the tornado will go. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's bringing me back to my childhood because like, I don't, we don't have to live with that here in California. You don't, we have plenty of other natural disasters to consider, but like tornadoes as a kid in the Midwest, you know, uh, when those dark clouds roll in and that siren goes off, mm-hmm. that was scary as a child. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Um, you did the entire trip around the world for, for $10,000. Yes. That's okay. Let's talk about that because I think <laughs> people listening, I, I think this is a really important point. Um, because, uh, you know, you sort of talked about it earlier in the conversation when you were making the decision to go and you're sitting in your cubicle and you're interviewing Paris Hilton's like dog architect or whatever it was. <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to make the leap that, you know, get get out the door to return to that metaphor, you know, getting out the door mm-hmm. of the plane to skydive. Like, I think most people who harbor some fantasy of travel will often get stuck on the money. And right. they'll, they'll say to themselves, well, once I have X amount of money or once I achieve, you know, X amount of financial security, then I'll be able to go do this. And, you know, I think it's worth exploring a little bit the fact that you were able to travel for an entire year to multiple countries on less than a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So, but you bought, you bought your airplane tickets and then it was 10,000 in spending money. Right. Yeah. So I, I bought the tickets from continent to continent. Um, in between, I traveled overland um, with like buses and trains. Um, and there were the occasional short flights, but uh, I rarely traveled by plane once I was um, in a continent. So um, so yeah, I I discovered that it really doesn't cost that much money to travel if you travel slowly, the cost comes from like the transportation or um, like just hopping around. Like if you're staying in a place for a couple weeks, they, you can usually get a discounted room in a hostel. Um, I stayed in a lot of dorm beds, you know? Um, I also was really strategic with the transportation. Like when I had to do um, long bus rides or train rides, I would schedule overnight trips because then that's transportation and, um, a bed in the same 
cost, you know? Right. How much, did you have a daily budget? $27. $27. And then you did it. And I did it. I still came home with some money. Um, yeah, I, and then I volunteered a lot in exchange for uh, room and board or very discounted room and board. Um, so I volunteered along the way. And I mean, I stayed in some real holes too. Like there were some really, really disgusting places where I slept. But, um, and you know, sometimes I spent the night like, at a bus station or, um, or whatever. But I also did a lot of couch surfing. Um, I don't know if you know what couch surfing is, but this was, so my trip was before the invention of Airbnb, but couch surfing is kind of like Airbnb, but free. Right. So it's when people have, um, like a couch or an extra bed or floor space available, they will put it on couch surfing and then um, you as a traveler can find someone in in the place where you're going and the hosts um, can be rated by people who uh, have stayed there. So there's like people can leave comments about their experience and give them like a star rating. And then um, the travelers can also, um, you know, the host can leave comments about the travelers. So you kind of you know in advance kind of what you're getting into um, in most cases. Sometimes the comments weren't accurate. Sometimes there were no comments because it was a new host or whatever. But for the most part, I stayed with really incredible people, and that helped me build some friendships around the world as well. Yeah, well, that's like kind of ballsy, though. You're going into somebody's house. You never met them before. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in some places, it was so... Like it was priceless. Um, right. There was, there was a a man that I stayed with, a thirty year old attorney that I stayed with in Kolkata, India, and he was a young attorney. I stayed with him, like on his couch, and um, and the the World Cup of cricket was happening um in India at the same time, and so he and his friends um had a little party to watch, uh the game on the TV and they were explaining cricket to me and then India won. And so the streets like exploded with fireworks and just people celebrating. And, and it was only because I was staying with this guy that like, I knew what was happening and that I had a greater understanding of the game and the game in context and what it means for India. And, you know, I, and I was able to take part in that celebration. So like that's an experience I wouldn't have had if I would have stayed in a hotel room. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, you get into the, you kind of, it's an immersion, you know, you get yourself mm -hmm. into these situations and, um, you know, it's a lot more authentic than staying at a hotel, you know, and, yeah. and being isolated from the actual people of the country that you're in, um, you know, outside of like hotel workers or restaurant workers or whatever, yeah. And I'm still friends with that guy and his friends. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you go to an ashram in India? I did. I did. It feels very Elizabeth Gilbert to say that. But no, yes, I'm down for Elizabeth I... Gilbert at, at an ashram. What, what was it yeah. like? Did you like you're you're uh, you're grieving and you're at an ashram and did, like what you know, what did you do? Did you have any kind of breakthroughs? I did. So the ashram was really I mean, it sounds almost cliche to say it, but it was um, 
first of all, it was it was really liberating because it came. I was like maybe eight months into my trip at that point. My mom had died just a couple months earlier. So I was grieving and I was tired. I was tired of traveling. Um, and I was tired of making decisions, you know, like where should I go next and what should I be doing and how do I get there and what do I do once I'm there? And, and the world had just started to feel very noisy to me again. And um, going tr- to an ashram where someone told me when to wake up, they gave me the food to eat. They told me when to do yoga. They told me like when to scrub the bathroom, <laughs> told me when to sleep. Um, like just having all of those decisions taken away was really liberating. Where was this ashram? Um, it was near Trivandrum in Southern India. Um, and it was, it was just such a joy being there just to, it, it gave me, it, it was like, it was like the sunset load on, uh, you know, when I was skydiving, it just brought me such a sense of peace to be still and to be in that moment and to be very present. And that's, that's the part of the trip where I really reconciled the fact that my mom was never able to make this trip that she wanted to take herself. Um, it brought me to the understanding that, you know, people, people prioritize their life and people tend to do what's important to them. And even though they might say like, I want to do this, or I, I want to achieve this, like my mom, my mom decided what was important in her life and that was raising a family. That was me, you know, um, and she ended up doing what was important to her. So maybe she didn't see the pyramids and maybe she never, you know, got to dance the tango in Buenos Aires, but she, she raised the family that she wanted. And, and that was a whole new, I, I don't, that was just a real breakthrough for me to think like, all along, she did the thing that she wanted. Hmm. Well, I, uh, I'm jealous. I wish I, I mean, I would love to go on an around the world trip. It's on my list. I think a lot of people have that dream and it's awesome that you actualized it. And not only that, but you wrote an entire book about it, uh, which is, I know, you know, maybe this is me projecting my own experience, uh, you know, trying to write a, a somewhat similar kind of book. But it's a tough it's a tough thing to do to get deeply personal uh, on the page. And for somebody who, you know, like you said, when you were starting this adventure out or when you were first conceiving of it, you know, you were tired of writing other people's stories. Mm-hmm. And then and then you you go out and you have this adventure and you try to write your own story. And I'm sure at the end of it, you're like, OK, time to write other people's stories again. <laughs> Right. Well, and I met so many great people along the way. Like I want to tell their stories again. So, right. But I mean, was there a difference between, um, you know, cause I, I think like, uh, one of the common conversations that I have with journalists on this show is the way that journalism can be a great preparation for writing a book. Um, and just like not being too precious about it because, you know, when you work on deadline in the newsroom, uh, you know, you don't have a choice. You get the words mm-hmm. done. You do the work. And I think that kind of discipline can be useful to any writer. Uh, and so 
I guess I'm just curious, uh, before I let you go to hear your thoughts on what the differences might have been when you sat down to write this book. Like, did you notice that there was a distinct, uh, you know, that there were two distinct experiences, uh, you know, working, working on the journalism stuff versus writing this book? Yeah. Well, the thing about having a background in journalism is that uh, the columns and articles that I would write are very short and a book is very long. <laughs> so, I mean, just the length of it. I knew books were long, but um, but sustaining a narrative over that that many pages, it just it felt very daunting. And it turns out I am a person who needs deadlines, um, which is why I ultimately ended up getting my MFA, because I knew if I didn't have someone pushing me, um, I would never get this book done. Like I would just be working on it forever and ever and ever. So um, so it was really helpful to have someone saying, OK, I need 50 pages of this in the next three months. <laughs> and um, and I still I still spent years working on it. Um, but I think that really helped guide me toward uh, the book that I wanted to write. And then um, another thing that came out of working with Alex Marzano Lesnovich was just talking about story structure and the different ways that you can create a narrative. And so, and and just so I can interrupt, like Alex Marzano Lesnovich, or I, I, apologies if I'm screwing up the name, but this was the writing retreat in Spain that you referenced earlier. Yeah. Um, so I did that in 2016, I think. Um, and that was, um, that was really helpful just to figure out structure. Uh, and at that point I started digging into other memoirs and, um, really pulling apart, like how the story is told, like not what the story is, but just like the architecture of it. And, um, and so once I started playing around with structure, it got a lot easier, um, and, and I started to think of it as like, not as, um, a collection of essays, but more like the rise of drama that you would find in putting together a bunch of columns, you know, um, like newspaper columns, like just thinking about smaller rising action along the way. So, um, so that was, that was helpful. Like I, I've been calling it um, a stegosaurus, like a negative, uh, a narrative stegosaurus, where um, it's these little bumps along the back going up to the top of the dinosaur, <laughs> you know? That's <laughs> that's very creative. Did your son help you with that? Or... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're very into dinosaurs here. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, actually, that might have come from Alex, too. It's But just to think about it in a different way than... Like sometimes I would look at, you know, people would draw the mountain of like a narrative climax. And I'm like, I am not writing that at all. <laughs> like, but um, but a stegosaurus. Yes, I can write a stegosaurus. <laughs> hmm. Well, uh, last question, I promise. But uh, okay. favorite place. Did you have a favorite place? Is uh, everyone asks me that. And yeah. I, I don't have a favorite place. Um, there are so many places that I really fell in love with um and so many places that I want to return I really 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 loved India and I spent a month there and it feels like I barely scratched the surface um Rwanda was a really special place to me and it's so beautiful so just 
downright gorgeous. Um, same with South Africa. And, um, and I've once heard Peru called um, a catalog of a country because there's, you know, there's desert and jungle and ocean and like there's, there's everything. Peru has it all. And so I love that about Peru. I have too many favorite places. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That's like, it's like one of those annoying questions that you have to ask. Yeah. And you sort yeah. of know it, like it's very rare that anybody can give a clean answer. Yeah, I know. And Cambodia, I feel like that, I, I don't know, a part of me just will always be with Cambodia. I I loved Cambodia also. Well, it's great to talk with you. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Congratulations on the book. Are you working on any, on another book? Or are you taking a break? What's happening? I'm working on the proposal for my next book, but um, it's travel-based, so that might have to wait for a little bit. <laughs> you have to pack that kid up. Yeah. Get him on the he's, plane. He's ready. <laughs> okay. Well, it's nice to talk with you, Maggie, uh, and congrats again. Thank you so much. All right, that is Maggie Downs. Her memoir is called Braver Than You Think Around the World on the Trip of My Mother's Lifetime, available now from Counterpoint Press. You can find Maggie on the internet at maggieink.com. That's I-N-K, maggieink.com. And her Twitter handle is at Downs and Dirty, at Downs and Dirty. The book, again, is called Braver Than You Think by Maggie Downs, available now. Go get it. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. More than 660 episodes out there. All available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you like the show, support the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. The Other People Podcast has its own app. It's free. The app, too, is free. Go get the app. It's available where apps are available. You can also get other people gear. T-shirts, sweatshirts, even tank tops. They're soft. They're comfortable. They're stylish. You can go to uh, the show's official website, otherppl.com. Look in the left sidebar. You'll see the link. It's a little, you know, you can't miss it. Go get some apparel. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Provide feedback. So let's see who we have coming up next, shall we? Who is it? It is... Oh... Yeah, I have uh, Raphael Bob Waxberg coming up. He is the guy who created uh, BoJack Horseman and has a story collection out now. Talk to him. That was a good time. And uh, I think you guys will find it of interest. So Raphael Bob Waxberg coming up next on the Other People program. I hope you're doing okay. Register to vote. Register your friends to vote. Get ready. Stop eating muffins, dude.